Hello and welcome to Suvion, the Cambridge podcast from St John's College. I'm Heather Hancock, Master of St John's and host of the podcast that brings you stories from our community to intrigue, inform and inspire. Today we meet Lisa Anson, the former UK president of AstraZeneca, ex-president of the Association of the British Pharmaceutical Industry, and now the chief executive of Red X Pharma. Lisa's willingness to take risks, her resilience and a can-do attitude are the keys to success for the Jonian woman who walked away from a pharmaceutical giant to take on the challenge of rescuing a struggling biotech startup. We find out what motivates Lisa, and why the pandemic changed conversations in the pub forever. Lisa, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome you to Souvion. Thank you very much for being willing to be interviewed by us today. And I thought we might begin. If you kindly tell us a little bit about your childhood, where you grew up, tell us about your family. Great. Well, thanks, Heather. And first, let me say it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Always happy to have any conversation with Jonians. So yeah, my, I grew up actually outside London in Buckinghamshire with my family. We also spent a couple of years in France. In my early years, we lived in Paris, which I think was very instructive from an early age. But I often say to people, I spent more time in Scotland because every time we were out of school, my parents would take us up to Scotland where most of my family was. So uh, that's built in to me a long-standing kind of association with Scotland and with family and holidays, even though I actually grew up in Buckinghamshire. And was that time outside or were you in, uh, were you in one of the cultural capitals of Scotland? Typically the countryside. I mean, I had family in Edinburgh, so I feel I, I know Edinburgh extremely well. But um, Perthshire is where most of my family uh, are and, and indeed still live. So that's a very special place for me. Oh, lucky you. Great place to be spending your holidays. Yeah, absolutely. And what, what sparked your interest in science in, the, in those early years? I think it was something always interesting to me. But I guess in my, particularly at my secondary school, I really loved the sciences. And I was at an all girls school, which I think was kind of interesting because no one ever told us that we couldn't do science. So I just went flat out and did science, not thinking there was anything different. When I look back on it now, I realise that actually the, the number of people doing science from the all-girls schools is typically higher. Um, but when you're in that environment, I didn't realise that was necessarily a factor. But during my teenage years, I, I kind of had a fascination with the fact that, and it still fascinates me today, that our bodies can do things on a minute basis all the time that we can't actually still understand. So your body's kind of cracking on doing all these processes and these biological processes and your mind is still trying to figure out what actually is going on. And this kind of conundrum has always kept me interested in what we're doing and seeking to understand the kind of underlying biology of disease and also kind of just human human nature. Um, so, And that's just continued to grow all my life. What made you think of St. John's? Because you came here to read natural sciences. What, what was that path? Um, I think, to be, to be fair, I, I, I was at a private school and there was always a strong connection with Cambridge. And I was always very ambitious and everyone said, well, Cambridge is the best place to do science. And so I think that is still was certainly true in my day and, uh, and I believe still to be true to this day, world competitive in science. Um, so that really attracted me. I think the choice of college 
was the reputation in science and that there were so many people in science. And I didn't have a particular connection with the college previously. So it it was uh, very much on the basis of that reputation. Plus, I, 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 I like to take a risk. I'm not phased by carving my own path. And, and I think it was early days for women there. But that was always, I mean, I have two brothers. and I uh, never felt that being a woman has held me back in any way or form. And therefore, it quite appealed to me to be one of the first women, to be honest. Um, so it was a combination of the science, uh, the reputation of the college, and, um, and the fact that, you know, this was going to be an exciting time for women in the college. I love that you talked about risk-taking as well, because that's something that we really try to this day to encourage in students, that once you're here, this is the moment to, to take some risks with your ideas and your thinking and to push the boundaries and to, to not sort of think that everything will happen by rote. But getting here opens up this huge, huge opportunity to explore your thinking and your ideas and, the, and not to be scared of sometimes getting an answer that's not what's expected or other people might think is wrong. I, I think that's so important. All my best experiences in my career have been um, when I've taken a risk and I'm not quite sure where it's going to go. You know, some of the graduates that I talk to now, I talk to a, a number, both at Cambridge and also at, at Durham, where my daughter has been. Um, one of my main messages for, for students today is, is you, you don't know where you're going. You know, in retrospect, people always ask you to talk about your career and it sounds like it's all really planned and, and mapped out. It doesn't work that way going forward. It only works that way going backwards. And so I think you have to be comfortable with the fact that sometimes you think, oh, this is interesting, or maybe I should just take a bet on this. I'm not quite sure where it's going to lead me, but you know, it could be interesting. And if it's not, I'll learn something either way. It's been a really good philosophy for me, and I think it was absolutely true uh, when I was um, at college. I may not have expressed it like that, but that was certainly an intuition. That's another thing that you've just said there really strikes a chord with us today, that sort of sense of where you're going. And, and we really try again to encourage our undergrads not to think that they have to have mapped out this path from, from the age of 18 until possibly never, ever retiring, but to take the space once they get to college to find out who you are, really, the person you want to be rather than the person somebody else has decided you might be by encouraging you to come here. What, what, was it, what did you do here that, was, that, that helped you kind of find out who Lisa Ranson might want to be. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a fantastically important point, Heather, because I-, I would say this generation actually have much more pressure than my generation. If I look at what my children have gone through and other students and, and, and certainly some of my younger employees at work have been through, the pressure and the competition is just ever higher and higher. Um, so I, I think it's even more important to remember to take the space to think about what you want to do and explore things. And, you know, I would say, and this may get into controversial territory, but certainly with some of the other alumni that um, of college that I talked to, we all look back, maybe we have slightly rosy tinted spectacles, I don't know, but we all look back and say, what a fantastic breadth of experience we got at college. We explored sport, we explored different clubs. We worked with different groups of people um, from different colleges or within college. And we just had the time to not just solely do uh, pursuit of a single academic kind of focus. Reflecting on the sciences, I mean, what a fantastic ability to have natural sciences. I think that's something that is really unique with Cambridge. One of my best courses I took was history and philosophy of science. I had no idea where it's going to take me. 
I didn't even really know what it was, but it was really uh, something that helped me start expressing differently things, exploring things, thinking about how innovation worked over time, or, or a lot of things that I hadn't really thought about. Um, and I found that tremendously helpful to me, but I wouldn't have known that when I started the course. So I think this idea of the breadth on offer, just trying different things and allowing a, a little bit of freedom to try that is really important. And I, I do think that comes back to later on in your career with leadership. You've got to be comfortable with uncertainty and kind of say, right, we're going to go this way and have people follow you do that, even if you're not entirely sure where it's going to go. So I I think that is a great time to explore those formative years. And I really hope that college and, and Cambridge can keep that breadth of opportunity for all the students and a little bit of space that isn't quite as stressful as, as sometimes the pure academic competition can be in this, you know, in this very competitive world we're all in. Well, I can't speak for other colleges, but I can absolutely assure you here, when I talk at the matriculation dinner, I say to the students, you must lie on the grass on the paddock and breathe and sleep and dream sometimes and try out all of these things. This is a moment where you must, must learn to have some time. So you had a fabulous time at John's. We'll take that as read from everything that you've said. And on leaving college, you became a management consultant at KPMG. It's a step lots of students take to this day. Uh, but it wasn't long before you then made a big move to the States. But before we hop across the Atlantic, tell us about those years immediately after Cambridge. Yeah, very exciting. Um, I, I love the management consultancy route because I guess it fits a little bit with I was not going to be a lab scientist, right? I knew that quite early on. Um, I was fascinated with innovation and science. Um, but I, I felt the connection to business, uh, wanting to explore business, because I do feel and I still feel very strongly that businesses can make a positive impact on the world and you can actually really achieve things there. And that appealed to my sense of achievement. So um, I wanted to explore business and and management consultancy gives you a way to see a lot of situations very quickly, to learn, to train with different people. I worked in everything from the automotive industry, food industry, big companies, small companies, you know, uh, M&A takeover to kind of corporate strategy, lots of different things. So it's just a very exciting time where you could explore the whole world of business. And it resulted in me going to do an MBA because I felt I wanted to develop the kind of uh, structured thinking a little bit behind some of the business areas. And then with a view that I would probably end up going back into science and healthcare, but I wasn't exactly sure how. So, you know, there are different careers that you can do that have the same effect as a consultancy, but I think it's a very good option for people who are analytical, broadly interested in business, not quite sure where to kind of make their mark. It does lead to a lot of options and a lot of learning in a very rapid way. And you meet some fantastic people. And interestingly, you also meet some senior people in business who can give you some very good advice with a lot of like-minded people. So I think there's a lot of benefits I have friends who were very clear about what they wanted to do, and that's great too. But for those of us like myself who weren't entirely clear what they wanted to do, it was a really good option. I spent some years as a, a consultant as well. I think it gives you a really good understanding of your transferable skills. And that actually, and, and these days, that expectation that you are very likely to have a whole series of well, work in different sectors or possibly three or four different strands to your career, understanding the skills you have. And again, that's something that in, in Cambridge, we're very good at polishing the intellect and, and sort of that's what the, uh, the promise is if you come here, but also building those skills to be able to transfer 
from one sector to another to understand how an approach in 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 in, in one dimension can be used to address a completely different looking problem in another really important skills yeah ab- absolutely i think it was um really good I, I really learned dramatically fast very different things than i learned at cambridge but ultimately it's the combination of the two that has been really important to me so i think that's that's a a, a critical point and even now some of the kind of um synthesis communications and synthesis of complex data problems in a way that uh, people of all different backgrounds and intellects, which you, you know, one of the lovely things about Cambridge is you're surrounded by uh, fantastically smart people all the time. You go out in the real world, you have to lead and work with teams from all different backgrounds, many of whom haven't finished school or haven't done this, that, the other. And and you need to be able to connect with all of those people. So I think be able to synthesize and communicate complex situations to uh, very different audiences and, and tailor to those audiences is definitely something you can learn in consulting. So what tempted you to AstraZeneca? Yeah, well, I, I was looking for a new challenge after business school. So I actually went off to the States. Sometimes you just have to grab opportunities when they arise. I was given the chance to go and work for one of the consulting clients. At that point, it was Zeneca. They wanted somebody to go out and work in this small disease management company on the West Coast of the States that they had acquired, but they didn't really quite know what to do with which sounded to me like a perfect assignment, the combination of California, healthcare, nobody quite knew what was going to be written, so I could... It wasn't a wrong answer. So my husband came, uh, uh, we weren't married at that time, we were just engaged, we went off to California, it was absolutely fantastic from both a personal and a career point of view. You know, the the can-do attitude in California has stayed with me, and it's something I was really pleased to be able to work there, to work uh, much as I love the UK and I'm a big champion of UK science, I think the opportunity to work somewhere else in the world is fantastic if you get it. Um, and I had that for two or three years. We lived and worked in California, and it was really um, tremendously formative for me. And then it was on the back of that that I then joined back AstraZeneca as a, as a permanent employee rather than just a kind of long-term consulting engagement. So career in pharma, what were the highlights? I love the pharma sector because it, it gives you so many different experiences. People say, Lisa, how did you stay at AstraZeneca for 20 years? Well, I don't feel like it was 20 years because I probably had 10 or 12 different jobs, different teams, different therapeutic areas, slightly different focuses, different challenges. So continually learning. And that's something that companies at scale can do for you. And if I hadn't have had those opportunities, I might have moved. And I think it's far more common in today's career to move on. It's also more common for people to reinvent themselves and have second and third careers. Um, but I, I just found that I could continue to learn. So I had everything from working in a, a U.S. court defending a situation uh, and having to be a, an expert witness to uh, learning about the intricacies of patent law to leading teams of sales force and providing direction on how we're going to sell sell a drug, dealing with shortages of asthma inhalers where you know patients are actually there desperately trying to get at something that you need to get to them because it's life or death for them not to have their inhaler to, you know, trying to uh, work with the NHS on um, Fluenz, the flu jab rollout program when the nasal spray got delayed. And we had to kind of work with the NHS to figure out how we were actually going to get that to all the kids, even though we kind of missed the four week window. So just a tremendous number of experiences, all of which have patients somewhere at the end of it, but ultimately was a business challenge of, of some description. And, you know, I, I love the R&D process, even though my background is more general management and commercial now. 
understanding where to put your investment. These are huge investments that people make to develop a drug these days. Many of them fail. So high risk industry, really complicated scientific data, um, just continually intellectually challenging, but kind of ultimately rewarding in a human sense. So, you know, it combines those there's two very important things for me, and I just think it's a fantastic sector. I mean, it just sounds so exciting and energizing, but at the same time, huge global company. You're dealing, as you said, with massive investment, high stakes, supporting people who've put their heart and soul into some direction that's not going to deliver. In other cases, you're dealing with the high emotions of the impact on you know, individual health in front of you in a courtroom or in a patient group. How did you personally build the confidence or the resilience to be in those environments? Resilience is a really important word for me throughout my whole business career. I don't like no. <laughs> I don't know how else to put that really, to be honest. And, you know, One of my phrases that people, my teams always tease me about, it's like, well, if we can't go through the door, we go through the window, right? You find a way. And that's, that's the fun bit. That's the creative bit of business. It's like, okay this is blocked. You know, we can't get this delivery here, right? We can't accept that. So what are we going to do? And I suppose that's a little bit of the, the California kind of implant in me is, is you do have a can-do attitude. It's tremendously important, tremendously important in any walk, walk of life. I mean, I, you know, I can be quite serious and quite introverted. So I'm not kind of one of those natural, wide out there optimists, but it really resilient and sort of determined that you can find a way to solve things. And I mean, if, if you look at our sector, 90% of the projects fail, right? So if you didn't believe there was a way to make this cancer go, you would never try and do it. So some of these hardest challenges that people tackle, I've met scientists who have for 20 years failed, but they don't see it like that. They look at it as like, we've learned, we've innovated, learned always adding to the body of knowledge yeah and then ultimately someone gets a breakthrough and they're all so excited for each other even if they just contributed one little bit of that knowledge that then someone else stood on their shoulders and someone else learned ultimately and there's something amazing about the scientific community and kind of collective credit I mean you hear certain names obviously rise to the top of the pile but there is a sense of collective endeavor of, of building that knowledge and ultimately, somebody will get that breakthrough or innovation, even if it's not you. And I think that's that's where the resilience is important in this sector, because, you know, people can go 20 years of their career without a breakthrough or a drug, and they still need to be motivated every day to go into, into the labs. Well, I wanted to pick this up. It's so interesting what you're saying, because, of course, COVID-19 made AstraZeneca such a household name. It was already well known, but it was on everybody's lips. It was on the news every night. And on top of just the extraordinary success of finding that early vaccine solution, which everybody was hoping and praying for and how amazing it was, but also then the commitment the company made to deliver it not for profit during the pandemic, which really stood out as such an extraordinary commitment by a global business to, to make that contribution. From what you're saying, that just really reflects the culture you experienced in AstraZeneca. But did it take you by surprise or did you think, well, of course we'd do that. Well, no, no, it did take me by surprise, but, you know, it, it also does reflect certain principles. So um, let me say first that the whole vaccine development is a, a massive credit to 
what we I think about as the ecosystem, particularly in the UK. So you no one part of the scientific community can progress without all the others. So you need the academics, you actually do need the companies, small companies like mine now, large companies like AstraZeneca, the healthcare system, the NHS, the policymakers, and, and indeed you do need the people who invest money. The investors are really important. So there's a kind of an ecosystem where everyone is actually ultimately dependent on each other. And that's very important to remember when we're trying to make the UK the science superpower. It's, you can't just have one sector. You need all of them to be thriving, including the commercial sector. Um, and therefore, you know, you do need to have people able to make a profit in the sector to make the whole sector thrive. In this case, it was a great example because it was Oxford University who had the academic kind of breakthrough. But there isn't any way they could have on their own scaled up and rolled out that. I mean, people underestimate enormously the complexity and scale that you need for the manufacturing and the regulatory process in, in our sector. And that's where a company of the scale of AstraZeneca, a lot of smart people, really well disciplined, used to working stuff through really, really quickly, cutting off the critical path, managing things, dealing with risk all the time, uh, taking those big risks, having multiple manufacturing sites, even though they were only going to use one. Those sorts of decision-making, speed of decision-making can only happen in a company that's really well honed at that. That's where AstraZeneca, I think, did a phenomenal job. And I know a lot of people worked, uh, my old colleagues worked night and day to make that happen with a real passion. That is very typical of what you see in a, in a big pharma company. From the outside, a lot of people don't always see that passion, commitment, professionalism, because they think, oh, it's a for-profit company. Somehow that that kind of <laughs> makes it all go away. And it's the academic people that have all that that kind of uh, credit for their passion and driving impact. I think this is a really nice example to show how both were needed and both had a real passion to drive it over the line. It was entirely unnecessary for AstraZeneca to make that comment about profit. And in fact, there are other companies in the sector, you know, Pfizer's the obvious one, who have made an awful lot of money out of COVID. And in many ways, no one's begrudged them that because it was absolutely something that the world needed. But I think it is quite typical of AstraZeneca because they really want, there's a there's an enormous number of people who really care in that company and work every day to get um, drugs and medicines to patients who need them. And I think it's it was a salient reminder that that is the primary reason most people go to work. It is not about just, you know, taking home the pay packet or making a profit. That is the primary reason. And I genuinely think that was a good example and it's a good thing that people talk about that in the pub, you know, before COVID, no one would talk about the pharma sector in the pub. I used to always joke about that with my husband who works in sport. Yeah, everyone wanted to talk about his sport or Disney or wherever he was working. They didn't really want to talk about cancer. Now that has changed. And I think that that's actually a, a lasting effect of, of COVID. And a, and a good thing. And I really agree with what you've said. I've spent half my career in the public sector and half in the private sector. There is no difference in the motivation of people to go and do good. Uh, they're just choosing different routes to do it. And sometimes they're dealing in the public sector quite often with problems that seem absolutely intractable in their universality and the need for the solution also to be universal. So that's an extraordinary commitment. But it doesn't mean if you're working in a different sector, you're not equally motivated by doing some good for the world. Right. Really important stuff. Interesting point. Yeah. So you've also made time to chair a number of industry-wide committees and other fora. And you, you talked there about the, uh, the interrelationships and the fact of the ecosystem in which government and policymakers and regulators as well, I guess, are all 
central. You can't you can't you can't run this without without them all kind of operating effectively together. But those kind of committees, those kind of fora, they're a very different environment in which to effect change. And I wondered, you know, how did you find it? What came out of your your participation in in those uh, industry engagement opportunities? To sum it up, I would say, you know, frustrating, but also kind of tantalizing in the sense that frustrating because learning to deal with the, the civil service, <laughs> of whom I have a great respect for many of them, they have a lot more patience than I do, to how they work and how they kind of have to go through the processes of, of government and the whole sector opened my eyes to that. Tantalizing was because the potential to impact things so significant, if you can really get alignment, you know, I'm very driven by making an impact. And I do think that in the companies I've been in in my career, I've tried to always have areas where I could make an impact. I do think the policy environment is absolutely critical. So I was drawn to it by the ability to say, actually, the UK has a very strong science sector. And I wanted to see that science sector kind of really at the forefront of the UK of the future. I think innovation, I think the biotech sector as well are hugely exciting, very interesting, very well-paid jobs that have a big impact on the economy, big impact on patients and a sector where we are world leading. And, you know, it doesn't go unnoticed that Cambridge, not just St. John's, I might say, but Cambridge more broadly, the patents per head of population are way higher than anywhere else in the world, including Boston or San Francisco. And like, you know, it is outstanding what the UK manages to achieve in science. And and yet the commercial sector behind that doesn't always follow. The big companies are all in the US. The success stories of commercialization are all in the US or elsewhere. So I, I do feel that there was a gap there. And some of that is to do with the policy framework. So that was what was drawing me to it. But I certainly learned there are very many different ways to build your career. And I couldn't have worked in the civil service. But I loved working with some of them um, to, to try and have that common agenda. Yeah, it was quite interesting for me to, to do that. I mean, I one of my other phrases that my teams often say I use is that with patients, you can achieve a lot, which would work for the civil service. But with impatience, you can achieve a lot more. And that's kind of where I come from. I learned patience and influence in a very different way through that. And I think, you know, that's one of the fun things about trying different situations in your career is you're always learning, right? You always learn different ways to work with people. And also learning different ways to approach risk and to mitigate risk and, and understanding the different perspectives that are on risk and the kind of world you're you're in is shot through with with risk, with commercial risk as as well as risks to human life and to everything that lies between it. So I think it, it's it, it must be interesting seeing those different perspectives on how you understand and then address risk. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think sometimes people underestimate, they look at this phrase of big pharma and say, you know, those are large, slow companies, and we love all these fast moving tech companies, you know, actually, in terms of ability to deal with significant risk and take major decisions and change the game, you know, these companies do a really good job of that, especially given that they're so big, you know, I think it's quite impressive. So Lisa, as we've heard, you took a new direction just a few years ago, to focus on cancer, which we know is the leading cause of death in the UK, even though 38% of cancer is preventable. And you're now CEO of Redex, and you've taken it through a, a great transformation into a clinical stage biotech company, uh, where you're discovering and developing new drugs to treat cancer and fibrotic disease. 
So why make that move? And what has it required of you that's been different? Yeah, so it's been a, it's been a really exciting chapter, actually, the last three or four years since I left AstraZeneca. You know, firstly, I, I think it built very naturally on, although I didn't know it at the time, my work with the government and the life sciences strategy and this kind of concept that we talked about, the ecosystem in, in science is you need all different players, the small companies as well as the large companies. And actually, it might be interesting for people to know that, you know, more than 60% of the drugs now coming to market, new drugs have been invented in biotech and then developed on uh, by the larger pharma. So these small biotechs are really important for early drug discovery. They can take risk and innovation in a way um, and a speed and agility that you you maybe don't get in some of the larger teams. And it is interesting to note that some of the best innovation doesn't need scale. You can have it in a small company. So my belief was that we have very strong academic centres in the UK, uh, obviously Cambridge being one of them, but there, there are others, I hear. <laughs> so no, but we do have a real strong science. I think that's very real and very well respected worldwide. But I, I see that sometimes we don't always have the strongest companies. Redex was a, 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 a good example of that. They had good science. Um, they had been doing a fantastic job and developed this really interesting um, drug. It was actually a BTK inhibitor that was quite interesting for, for cancer and next generation therapy. And, and they went into administration, which just fascinated me from the outside. One of the most interesting drugs to be discovered in the UK in maybe the last five years and the company that did it went into administration over a relatively small amount of money as a result that drug got snapped up by another company a u.s company who has now gone on to made an absolute fortune out of it and sold their company on to lily and i think you know that drug is probably worth about four billion dollars today and it was a two million dollar loan that radix uh, defaulted on and so you know you can say that's financing you could say it was leadership but in any event, it wasn't the science. And so, you know, that piqued my interest because I'm, I'm not saying there are many examples like that, but it is many different reasons why the UK has not developed so many strong science companies. I think it's improving actually now. And so I thought, well, look, I can do something about this. I can provide some of that leadership. I'm passionate about the UK being successful. If I can attract the right funding and do the right turnaround job, we can really build a successful company out of this scientific team at Radix. So I was delighted when I got headhunted for the role post-administration to come in and see if I what I could do. I thought, well, it's time for me to move on. I wanted to stay in the UK with my children at, at schools. My next job with AstraZeneca would have required me to move. So this was a really kind of important decision for me. So I'll go to elsewhere in the sector and see how I can create an impact there. Uh, again, took a risk. Some of my colleagues thought I was crazy at the time to go to this uh, turnaround situation. But, you know, I looked at is I've got nothing to lose. If I, if it goes well, it's all upside. If it doesn't go well, people will say, well, it was already broken. So I really didn't have much to lose. And it's been a fantastic experience. Great team at Redex. Really good science. Attracted some um, great investors who've shared a bit of vision, taken some risk, backing us. And now, you know, we're in a really good place as a, as a public company in the UK um, with uh, five drugs now come to come to clinic from the team and potentially may have a make a real difference to patients. Well, I want to ask you about those drugs in a moment, but just from what you've said there, I'm intrigued because I think the outside perspective is that there's an inevitable sort of David and Goliath aspect to the relationship it, between biotech and big pharma and, and finance. 
for these sorts of things. And it sounds to me like you're carving out a route which rebalances that relationship. And, and that's where the kind of the future lies in terms of having the healthy ecosystem you've talked about previously. But does it still feel David and Goliath? Did it feel like that? It can do. I mean, I think it's, you know, there's a lot of blood, sweat and tears in raising finance. And that is really important because it's basically saying to you, whoever it is, your money entrusted to your pension funds or whichever investors to say, are you going to back me? me personally, my management team and judgment, and our science to put our money in and, and, and deliver something. And so that's a long discussion. And you really hone your proposition in terms of what you're investing in when you get feedback. People say, no, I don't like that, or I like this, or I don't like that. And you figure out, I want to create this innovation. And eventually, if you're lucky, and you do a good job, and you're professional, you, you attract the right people to align with that vision. Um, and I've been lucky enough to do that. And it's been fantastic, the input we've had from our investors. They work with lots of companies. They've got lots of great advice. Now, it, in AstraZeneca, we never had to do that because we always had so much cash generated from our commercial portfolio that we could invest in R&D. So that, was a, that whole investment process was internal to AstraZeneca rather than externalized. But fundamentally, you need both, as I've referred to earlier. And I think we play different roles in the innovation process to, to bring new drugs to market. And as we talked about earlier, I mean, the COVID example is a classic example. Oxford alone couldn't have, have done that. And AstraZeneca alone couldn't have done that. Same is true with the BioNTech and, and Pfizer alliance. Both of them needed each other. And I think this, this partnership idea is very important in our sector. I mean, I've done, in Redix, we've done a, a couple of deals with, with very big companies. And we're we have an asset that we're licensing to them. You know, we might be an 80-person company dealing with an 80,000-person company, but we negotiate a bespoke deal because they need what we we are able to produce. And so in some ways, it kind of takes the scale out of it um, because it's just two companies negotiating, even though they're hugely different scales. Quite a lot of our undergraduates these days are really ambitious to, to be entrepreneurs. And one of the things we try and explore with them is, do they mean being the entrepreneur or do they mean working in an entrepreneurial and innovative culture? There's a much greater sweep of places where you can be in an entrepreneurial and innovative culture rather than putting the pressure on yourself to have the idea. It's, it's a fabulous ambition to have, but to try to get them to understand there are lots of ways that you can participate in the excitement of that new product or new service. That's a great question, Heather, because I mean, I think it's very exciting to work in somewhere that's entrepreneurial. And I love the decision-making speed and the freedom and the agility in a small company. You know, we live and die by our own results and it's it's really exciting. In order to do that, I am relying on skills and judgments that I've honed in multiple different situations that was accelerated by being in a big company because I could be moved around all of those situations. And so it comes back to the breadth of experience that I have as a general manager, being able to apply that judgment and not be scared of situation. I've seen a situation a bit like this before, you know, let's not panic. Let's, let's think about this or let's move really fast on this because, you know, it's a disappearing opportunity. So I, I do not subscribe to the fact that you can't have innovation, rapid learning, risk-taking, um, very important agility and decision-making in large companies. Yes, you have some bureaucracy. Yes, you have frustrations. And, and the same would be true, I guess, in the public sector. You, you, you learn different things. But if you're determined to make an impact and you can be in a company that's doing that, I think somewhere 
innovation is the lifeblood of those companies. If you can do it in a Cambridge college that's 500 years old, my word, you can do it anywhere. Well, and that's right. But I mean, the only reason it is 500 years old is because it has been able to innovate, right? And become and stay relevant. You can become obsolescent very, very quickly in today's world. And so I think any company that doesn't have innovation at its heart is going to struggle or any organization, I should probably say. So you hinted earlier about some of the programs you've got in development in, in RedX. Tell us a bit what they might might mean for the future. Yeah, well, it's very early. And even for me, a lot of the sciences, it's very early. And uh, sometimes people forget that. So these can be four or five years away from market. We have uh, drugs in uh, what we call phase two clinical trials, so where you're looking to test the efficacy for diseases like pancreatic cancer or biliary cancer. So these are these are diseases where um, you know, we might look at breast cancer now and say, actually, there's a really good survival rate, particularly if you have early, but, you know, your five-year survival survival rates are kind of 90, 95% for a lot of breast cancer, which is huge transformation over the last 10, 20 years. Fantastic news for men and women all over the world. If you look at biliary and pancreatic, five-year survival rates, the chance of being alive after five years, 2%, 3%. And that's the sort of diseases that we're now focusing our efforts on, these really hard-to-treat tumours, which may be not so common, so less people have them, but are really, really underserved in, t- in terms of treatment. So we did have uh, some pretty good results from, from some individual patients. Obviously, overall, we haven't released the results, so I want to be very careful not to say that we're claiming anything. But on individual patients who are in those trials have had responses and, and have come back to the company and said what a phenomenal response they've had. In fact, there's a patient at Christie's, which is in Manchester, so very local to RedX, uh, who's corresponded with us. That's rem- Even if it doesn't make it as a drug, that's remarkably rewarding because you know, and our scientists know, that what they've been working on for three, four years now, designing a drug, actually may have the potential to impact lots of people, but certainly has already had the potential to impact at least one patient that's been in touch with them. And um, there's nothing like talking to people who've actually been the recipient of the drugs you've developed. And I think the patients also love to talk to the people who've developed the drugs because that's not always something you get to do. And I like joining up those two pieces of um, of the sector because that's at the end of the day what it's all about. Patients and families and those who are trying their hardest to help them. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, nearly everybody you speak to has a personal story, um, has been touched by cancer. And I think, you know, a lot of people can really relate to the challenge of trying to tackle it and trying to defeat it. And I think that is increasingly a reality. And many people live with cancer now, but not in all types of cancer. So we still have a long way to go. You're doing this extraordinary job. You've shown this amazing leadership in AstraZeneca. Now you're at the forefront of, of a company that's trying to deal with some of the hardest to identify and treat areas of of cancer. Have women always been at the forefront of this or is this a more recent trend that we're starting to see? We saw lots of women in COVID, you see. We saw lots of women at the forefront of the vaccine breakthroughs. And perhaps we just hadn't noticed that women were playing such an important role. I think it's a really interesting observation. If you look at the uh, husband and wife team at BioNTech, if you look at Sarah Gilbert at Oxford, if you look at, you know, everyone from the head of the MHRA, you know, a lot of very senior, very capable women on show for what we can do. I mean, I'm, I'm always in awe of the, the quality of scientists, male and female, around um, the area I work in. There are a lot of very good women around this sector. 
is not always a sector that's that visible. I think COVID has, has shone a, a light on the sector, so that maybe have come to the forefront. I don't think it's totally representative of all of the companies. If I look back at, you know, we used to have these top 100 or leaders in, in AstraZeneca type meetings. There definitely were a strong cohort of women, but it was the it was the minority. And I often think that was in part due to the just sheer demands of working in a global company and the travel. So you've got to want to do it. And that is not everybody. It's not all women. It's not all men. You've got to want to do that. However, if I look at my sector now in biotech, you know, I've just been at a meeting in London this week with lots of other biotech companies. It's still kind of 80% male at the top. Most of the presenters were male. Most of the CEOs were male. Not all of them. There's a strong, capable uh, minority, but I still think there's still a long way to go. If I look at my board, we're a public company. It's 50-50. It's great. That's because they're the best people for the job. You know, it's not because I've I've gone out of my way to only select female board members. It is they are the best people for the job, and I strongly believe that that's the way to play play women into teams is because they're great at their job, not just because they happen to be a woman. Oh no, who wants to be there just because you're a woman? I don't subscribe to that at all because I I don't think I think there are fantastic women. I do think women need coaching and mentors to have stronger belief and self-confidence sometimes. I've seen that a lot in my career. They doubt themselves a little bit more. I don't like to generalize, but I have had a lot of conversations with people about, you know, really believing in their own capabilities. Um, So I think the coaching and mentoring can be particularly important, but the talent is no question. Um, It can be 50-50. And I love having a, a completely balanced board in that regard. But it's not it's not throughout the sector. But, you know, there are I mean, I was the first female president of the ABPI, which is the industry association, which is an elected position. But I never wanted to be announced that that was the main headline. (laughs) So this has been absolutely fascinating. And I think what what you were saying there, that so much of what you've told us, Lisa, about your life and career has been about how you've got comfortable with and embraced risk and and being willing to to take some some steps that might not quite have worked out, but you know, there'd always be a recoverable position from it. And maybe that's also part of what uh, that coaching of, of women following following after you can, can help with as well, is that sense of feeling comfortable with risk and, and knowing that something going wrong will not be the end of the world. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, I did a talk to um, an entrepreneurship program on, of biology graduates, and a, a lot of them were very nervous of making mistakes because they want to be as good as they can be, and it's a very competitive world. And I said, you know, Actually, you need to turn that around and say you need to make mistakes to really learn. And that's how you really grow. And that's maybe a bit the difference between when you go into your career and when you're just in an an academic situation is if you don't take risks, you know, you won't really achieve things. And and that is how you learn. And I guess it's a bit the kind of classic old fashioned, you know, Toyota mentality where they say, you know, mistakes are treasures because that's how we become I think it was a little bit how we beat the Americans, but you know, it's like that's how we become better. So I do think risk, resilience, and kind of a can-do attitude are kind of for me the basics of, of of my approach to pretty much any situation that's thrown at me. So sitting as you do today in this admired position, um, and all that you've achieved so far and lots more to come, I know. When you look back at Cambridge and look at back at John's, what are your reflections on your time here from where you sit now? Yeah. You know, I, I I don't know how 
admire is I think I'm, I'm just willing to speak out and I think that's something um, also that's that's important because you recognize that actually people want to hear you know what you what you've got to say and it's not necessarily right or wrong it's just a perspective that that, that they can consider um, when I look back at John's you know some of my dearest friends and the people I'm in constant I'll probably get some 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 comments after this on my whatsapp group you know we're a really close group uh, throughout our lives and it's fantastic you know I feel a, a real bond with everybody who's been at St John's whether I, I know them or not because it's it was just such a fantastic place it stretched you academically but it kind of grew you challenged you uh, surprised you socially you, you know you had you tried stuff that you didn't know that you wanted to try and it was just a lot of fun very exciting and really lived in the moment. And I think all of those things were, were fantastic. So for me, it was a great foundation. My experience at business school was entirely different. You know, it's a much more professionalized kind of learning experience and lots of lectures and very interactive and group studies and um, case studies and a, quite a different experience. Um, and again, we have that similar bonding. Um, and I took very different experiences from them both. I, I I liked having um, the, the two contrasting. I think it, it developed me in different ways. Um, I just hope that the people who go to college today have the breadth of experience that we had um, and, and, and don't have the, a level of stress that I sometimes see in the students these days. Maybe our collective relationships that we have got us through that stress without me really noticing it. I never felt stressed when I was at John's, whereas I know that People, students these days often feel a lot more pressure. They really can. You know, you've talked a lot really about that sense of affinity with the college. I was in a conversation earlier today with somebody who runs a different kind of educational institution, not part of, of the university here at all. And she talked about the people who arrived there feeling they would fit in. And I thought, we don't think that here. We just sort of think you belong. You immediately belong. And that is it. There's no need to do anything else. You know, you we chose you, we selected you, you belong. And then to make sure that there is that sort of time and space to do all the wonderful things we want. If I were going to sum up our strategy at the moment in one phrase, it's really to be the most college college, to be the best possible version of a college you can be. And that is not only about academic progress, even though that sits at the heart of it. But we firmly see that you clearly see that people tend to achieve more if they're busy with lots of things and they're being stretched in lots of ways rather than only through their studies? Well, I, th I think I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I love the idea of college. I, I, I don't understand why more universities haven't picked up on the college system because it does have that sense of being, you can belong to a group of five or 600 people. It's just not addressable, 30,000 people, is it? That, that's right. And you feel a sense of connection, even if people are very different from you, you feel that sort of sense of connection and I think that really helps you to deal with lots of different situations because it is a support structure it's also a challenge structure and and I think if if you can build those kind of leadership qualities and relationships that actually helps you get through all of the challenges and thrive whereas just a single singular focus a singular approach doesn't and, and I really believe that um, John's has got something special and I really think it's great to hear you talk like this because it's my hope that, that that does stay and it does win through. And certainly if I look at the kind of the leadership characteristics I would want to see in, in business, you're not going to get that through a singular academic focus. Of course, we want the best academic and smart and intellectual people in our sector by definition. 
But if you can have those people that have that extra special relationship, ability to connect to people, ability to thrive under pressure and take risk, and you put those together, then that's, that will achieve an amazing amount of impact. And I, I think that's very exciting. I, I have a, a lot of great things to say about John's. And I think that's a very strong sense amongst my generation. And I really hope that's true for the current generation of Jonians. Oh, Alicia, you couldn't have sort of summed up the alchemy of John's better for us there. And your life in Creosin's College is a proof point for it as well. So all I want to say is thank you so much for being willing to share your experience and all the excitements and the risks in it with us. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for asking to me. It's always a pleasure. So thanks, Helen. Thank you for listening to Suvion. Suvion is taken from Souvent me Suvion, the medieval French motto of our founder, Lady Margaret Beaufort, the matriarch of the Tudor dynasty. Souvent me Suvion is usually translated as I often remember or remember me often. That's why when visiting St. John's, you'll see blue forget-me-not flowers in the decorations surrounding the college's arms. Lady Margaret's own story of political brilliance, self-preservation and personal influence is one we remember often. For more on life at St. John's College and the University of Cambridge, visit joh.cam.ac.uk or follow us on social media.